What's up, everyone? I'm Andrew Steinwald, and this is Zima Red. On this show, we speak with the users, founders, and creatives that are diving into the world of unique digital assets, also called non-fungible tokens. My guest today is Roshan Patel, aka Ro. Ro is a vice president at Genesis, which is a lending and trading desk fully dedicated to the crypto sector. Ro joined Genesis in the very early days of its formation and has seen it grow from a tiny couple person operation into the behemoth that it is today. We dive deep into crypto lending markets, what they are, how they work, and why they are needed. It was incredible chatting with Ro because he is deep into market psychology, trading, lending, and how the crypto markets are evolving from both a ground floor perspective and institutional standpoint. If you want to dive deep into the inner workings of the crypto markets, then this is the episode for you. Please enjoy my conversation with Ro. Roshan, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm super excited to chat with you. And to get us started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. Awesome, Andrew. Uh, thanks for having me on this podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to be here as well. Um, you know, in terms of the background, to kind of keep it brief, uh, I've been involved in the crypto space for a number of years now. Uh, currently, I work at Genesis Trading, uh, specifically on the lending desk, as well as some trading functions and, and more esoteric opportunities that we've been engaging in, um, including like venture. And in terms of what I was up to before that, uh, really, I kind of just graduated from undergrad and um, worked at a trading firm in Chicago after. Uh, I enjoyed it and it was fun, but it wasn't really involved in the crypto space. And at the time it was 2017, I had just graduated from college and I had sort of heard about um, crypto. I was invested a little bit at the time in really just Ethereum. And you know, obviously that year went crazy. So I started getting, to, getting into kind of trading a little bit, ARB trading. Um, by the fall of 2018, or by the fall of 2017, I was, uh, you know, really just full-on obsessed with crypto markets, exchanges, all sorts of things that were going on, and um, yeah, I kind of left my my old firm to to just kind of do that on my own for a little bit. Uh, a lot of the trades I was actually doing sort of dried up in March of 2018, and didn't really have uh, sort of like a next thing lined up when when that kind of happened and i was kind of looking back at some of the pnl that you know i i uh i sort of had during those those trades and i, I was looking at the delta and kind of like what happened was arb trading was really good in terms of getting more units but a lot of the units went down in price and as you scale up um that's not really good because you're putting in fresh dollars to to trade and uh ultimately i was probably slightly flat, if not down on, on that whole endeavor. So I started Googling uh, while I was out in Asia, kind of on a break from markets, um, you know, how do I borrow Litecoin? I remember Googling that. And I came across Genesis starting a lending desk. And yeah, in, in, in that, like it, it kind of just worked out from there. Um, there was an analyst position on LinkedIn, reached out to the guy who posted it, who's now one of my closest friends and colleagues. And yeah, the rest is history. Kind of, we started with a few clients, less than 100 million active loans, and as of today, we have 11 billion dollars in active loans, and hundreds of clients. So, uh, yeah, it's exploded, and it's uh, it's been quite a journey. Damn, that that is that is insane. All right, so so I, I want to go back a little bit and talk about uh, your background, and specifically, I, I want to learn about what got you excited about the trading world, because I feel like uh, you know it's it's not. It's not super mainstream. I feel like there's, uh, you know, it's, it's it's pretty niche. And so for you, what was the appealing factor to for, for yourself to get involved in trading? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. And actually, to answer that, I have to go even a little bit further back than I gave in this background. But um, to go even, yeah, to, to really start that story, I mean, let's say high school, I was a, I was a pretty good student, um, got, got fairly good grades, and, and I was interested in sort of the stock market and did some of like the stock um, uh, trading competitions in, in middle school and high school. And, and there were some certain things you could actually game in that that were really funny. Uh, one thing was like there was a delay in stock splits getting credited to your account. So you could kind of manipulate that a little bit to, to, to boost your P&L, but that quickly got caught on. So I actually, um, yeah, that didn't work out so well. But ultimately I was you know messing around. And then that got me kind of looking at stock splits and all these sorts of interesting event-driven trading strategies. Then fast forward to college where I, I went to Northwestern and I studied uh, computer science in the School of Engineering and Mathematical Methods in the Social Sciences, which, you know, the, the TLDR there is it's a lot harder than high school. And I, you know, I didn't really have like the best grades in my freshman and sophomore year of college. 
And as a result of that, a lot of the sort of traditional routes uh, that a lot of my peers were taking, you know, in terms of investment banking and consulting, where there was cutoffs for GPAs and they cared so much about that top line number, um, you know, were just a little bit more closed to me. So I, between my sophomore year and junior year, I got an internship working uh, between the floor of the sort of um, Chicago Board of Options Exchange, as well as like a market making firm that was, you know, kind of in the same building uh, trading on screens and like kind of shouting to floor traders over voice chat. So I got exposure to the sort of early, like the end of the, the, the floor trading markets. I mean, I think that SPX pit still exists, um, but it's, it's a lot smaller. And, you know, I, when, when, I, when I got that internship and started trading down there, it was, uh, it was very exciting to me. You know, it was like very democratic. People were from all sorts of, you know, shapes and, and colors and, and kind of just all out there you know, engaging in these markets. And, you know, at the same time, there was a certain like, sort of just like, you know, innate, like just nascency to it. It seemed like I was like, oh, like, you know, these global financial markets are so, you know, talked about, but like, this is what's happening behind the scenes. There's just a bunch of people yelling options prices. And that was kind of the summer I got into looking at uh, Bitcoin, which I actually didn't even touch really. It was just like, people were talking about it. I think Nick Sabo's uh, blog was the one that was talking about Bitcoin as a as a sort of uh, way for Greece to to get out of its debt crisis, some, something like that. And it was, it was on his blog and I read it, I thought it was interesting, but really next summer I was interning at Gelber because I stuck with the whole trading thing because I really liked um, the, the democratic nature of it, the sort of eat what you kill mentality, the, the your work is kind of what you're graded on, not really your GPA from your freshman math class or anything like that. And yeah, in 2016, the, the Dow hack happened and someone uh, at work while I was interning was talking about it and I got really into Ethereum at that point. And then also like Brexit was happening, Trump was elected that year. So there's all these wild events where it was just almost like the perfect, you know, uh, sort of environment to get into learning about decentralized uh, applications. And, and yeah, that's kind of how I got into the trading and then crypto as a subsequent uh, next step from there. But yeah, it's 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 been a it's been quite a journey there. So when you were at your trading firm, you weren't you were trading traditional assets. There was no crypto component, correct? Correct. Yeah, while I was interning, it was a lot of FX and um, equity futures trading. And then when I was um, full time, it was like more of like an algorithmic trading side of things. So kind of like making strategies that exist a little bit better from like an execution standpoint and from like a how to harvest some extra PL out of it. Uh, it was very unrelated to crypto. So what was your initial attraction to crypto? Were you more of like the philosophical, like, okay, uh, you know, down with the Fed, like that, that kind of vibe, or was it more so the, the, the kind of, kind of the, the monetary gains that, that were present in, in, the, in the market? Yeah, it's funny because it actually it came almost full circle because initially I was uh, more interested in the app layer than in the bear market of 1819. I got interested in the store of value gold thesis and then right now I'd say I'm back to a lot of the app layer for a variety of reasons but to talk about the initial what got me into it it was really um, it was actually my friend Zach who I, I have to give him a shout out here he was we were kind of just sitting um, like you know in college and and he and he kind of just explained ethereum very basically to me he was like look like there are applications on the internet but now you can make them sort of like they're not on servers it was like it was like something very basic in that sense and, it, and for some reason just at, at that point like it just clicked with me and, um, you know, I had heard about it before and I wasn't really looking too deep into it. The DAO hack happened and I was like a little bit involved, but it wasn't really full on. But then once I understood like the application layer of uh, like sort of a programming on chain, the then my then my mind sort of, uh, you know, kind of went down the real rabbit hole. So it was really that that's what got me into it at first. Like and the first thing actually what, what, I, what I thought about now that I remember it was, oh, you can make like an exchange on this, like you can make options on this. I literally, like, that was the first thing I thought of. The first thing I thought of was like, there has to be a DEX. And then lo and behold, like you're using Ether Delta. And I didn't even know Ether Delta was a DEX before I used it. Then I found out later, like this is a DEX and it's all a smart contract. I'm like, whoa. And then like Zero X started talking about it. And then eventually now we have options protocols and things. But that was my first thought. I'm like, you can just build a peer-to-peer -peer trading mechanism using this contractual uh, sort of framework that Ethereum has created. And that's what got me into it. Oh my God, Ether Delta! I, I almost forgot. I try. I try to erase that out of my out of my memory. <laughs> and uh, Ether Delta was just—it was a nightmare. Like you would use it, and you wouldn't know like what was actually happening. 
because you oh, wouldn't know if your yeah. trade went through or if it if it like it was it was crazy. It was wild. Yeah, one of the worst UXs ever. But uh, yeah, yeah, glad, yeah. Glad, it's like a stamp of honor. On, oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. Awesome. All right, all right. So okay, so you applied. Uh, you you Googled and you found Genesis and you just applied online and then you your 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 now friend he, he interviewed you for it and just brought you on board or, or what was that process like? Yeah, the interview process was pretty straightforward then. It was, I mean, it was probably a lot different than what it looks like now um, in many ways because Genesis at the time was like less than 15 people and everyone was kind of shoulder to shoulder in a really small office with DCG and Grayscale in New York City. And I remember I had actually, when I got the interview was when I actually decided to fly back from Singapore because I was kind of out there for, an, you know, just like a to-be-determined amount of time. And and I came back to New York to meet... Um, um, Matt, who's, who's, the guy, who's the guy who interviewed me. And yeah, we, you know, we met for coffee. We kind of hit it off. I think he understood that I was really into crypto and have and had experience in the, in the market. And yeah, then it was another interview after that, meeting some people, and then a third one, meeting some people. But it was all really fast. It was like in a matter of a month. And I think I started interviewing in May, and I, I started working in June. That's awesome. Okay, so can you tell, tell me like very high level, what is Genesis? Yeah, so Genesis, um, I guess to understand Genesis, you have to understand where, where it sits um, below and kind of next to. Genesis is a wholly owned subsidiary of Digital Currency Group. Uh, DCG is kind of a, a venture, sort of Berkshire-style setup uh, firm in the space where you know DCG has a bunch of venture investments uh, across the board. I think right now it's over 200 and also has a handful of companies that it wholly owns and operates entirely within its umbrella that you know it has 100% ownership over. And for a while, um, there was only really uh, two of them. It was Genesis Trading and uh, what's now Grayscale Investments, then like the Bitcoin Investment Trust, which kind of runs the public quotations on GBTC and other sort of um, assets like uh, that are traded on the OTC markets. Uh, Genesis, which is the authorized participant for that trust, as well as the sort of uh, spot trading, um, what was then just a spot trading arm, uh, where it kind of just made markets in Bitcoin to start, then added a few more assets as it as they sort of came to light. And this was all started around 2014. Um, and then eventually we picked up Coindesk and 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 then DCG Foundry, which is a mining company, and and Luno, which is an exchange. And we kind of interfaced them with them all to various degrees, but. Um, you know, going back to 2014-15, when Genesis was sort of started uh, under DCG, it had its roots from a broker-dealer called Second Market. Um, Second Market was basically a place that private investors could trade illiquid company stock, um, like Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, all pre-IPO, and that was started in, I think, about 2004. So one of the desks at Second Market started trading Bitcoin at the sort of um, will of Barry Silbert, who's ultimately now the CEO of DCG, um, you know that was just a sort of market that made sense to get involved in because we were dealing with people on the West Coast and the East Coast, and the people on the West Coast were talking about this Bitcoin thing, and people on the East Coast like didn't really know much about it, but you know kind of got it in a, from an investment angle, and you know that kind of cross made sense to to facilitate, and um, yeah, you know. In 2014, that company was sold to NASDAQ, kept broker-dealer license, and then the you know Genesis was formed alongside Grayscale Investments and Digital Currency Group all at once. And then at the time, there was actually like a auction for the Silk Road uh, Marshalls auction, and DCG, or sorry, Genesis and Grayscale won the second bid for that. So that kind of gave us a, a little bit of a, a sort of war chest to work with in terms of inventory for market making. And yeah, then fast forward to now, what Genesis has become since then, you know, in 2018, we started the lending desk. Um, you know, Matt and I kind of helped build that from, from the ground up really, or really, really kind of got it going and, and it's exploded in popularity. And then in 2019, we started a derivatives trading desk, um, you know, options and, and futures uh, over the counter. So right now, Genesis is the closest thing I would say to like more of a digital currency prime broker where you can trade spot, you can lend, you can borrow, you can trade options, you can move your inventory across um, collateral to premium to loans and borrows sort of seamlessly. And that's the the sort of position we have in the market right now. 
and a lot of people kind of use us for um, trading and lending and just the matter of convenience of having everything in one spot. Um, it's a little bit different from an exchange because we don't necessarily, you know, operate fully on screens. A lot of it's still chat and talking. Uh, so it's a little bit more um, high touch, I would say. And as a result of that, we don't really deal with retail clients. All of our clients are basically eligible contract participants, um, which means that they have a certain amount of assets and sophistication. Okay, so so Genesis Trading is not like a it's not like a prop shop where you guys are trading your own proprietary capital, or or are you guys? And no. Like, okay, so so Genesis Trading is is interfacing with different institutional clients for whatever those clients need. So if they're like, hey, I want to trade options or whatever, you guys will facilitate that. Yeah, exactly. We're like a sell side. The closest analogy is like a sell side trading desk at a bank. You know, clients okay. come to us and they want to do us. We're not really uh, at all telling clients like what they should do or giving um, sort of advice or, or, or things like that. It's a completely like the people that we're dealing with come to us. They're sophisticated and we just sort of help them get things done. Um, we operate on a principal basis though. So it's not like we're every single loan that comes to us, um, you know, we're matching one-to-one with the borrower and it's like the risk is transferred over directly borrower to lender or seller to buyer on the spot side. Um, it all goes through Genesis. So we do have risk on our balance sheet at any given point but we manage that risk and it's not really proprietary risk. We make our money from the flow that comes into the business. Very cool. Okay. So, so Genesis lending, can you describe to me in, in more detail on how that works? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, kind of like if, the, if, if you want to give like a, like a basic example of, of, of some sort of, uh, you know, kind of transaction that you do with with a client. Yeah, for sure. So like, let's say, um, you know, 2018, uh, uh, Ethereum, Litecoin, Zcash, a lot of these alts are, are you know, priced at, at high prices that you think might go down. You know, there's limited ways to kind of get short exposure to them. So one thing you could do is you can borrow them from Genesis, post Bitcoin or USD as collateral, and then uh, sell them. And what makes Genesis nice is, you know, you can, uh, you can get that bid on the, the, the coin you borrow directly from our trading desk, and you don't actually have to take delivery of it to settle it. So it's kind of a way to borrow, get short exposure. That's one use case of, of borrowing. And it's the one that people, I think, uh, sort of uh, jump to as like the first most obvious one. Uh, it, you'd be surprised, though, in terms of kind of how much, how, how, lar- how large that is actually relative to other use cases. But that is the sort of the first use case that, that comes to mind and the simplest to understand. Other use cases you can think of is well, why would you want to be long an asset and borrow another asset? There's a bunch of different reasons. I mean, um, one is like if you wanted to scale up your balance on an exchange that only takes Bitcoin as collateral, which, you know, at the time we got started in 18 and, and 19, you know, there was a lot more Bitcoin collateralized trading than dollar or stable coins. In fact, a lot of stable coins weren't even close to as big as they are now. So, you know, you would basically be able to borrow the spot and use it to to trade on exchanges and not be uh, exposed to it long, which is pretty valuable. Um, another use case is like if you wanted to hedge your future receivables in an asset, like let's say you're, you know, you're going to make X amount of income in Zcash in the future dates. Like you know, you could hedge some of that and borrow spot to to sort of offset that future cash flow. So there's all sorts of interesting and different use cases. A lot of like market making of futures versus spot and things like that. So it's really just a matter of you know, kind of at the core of it, you're getting the ability to hold an asset on your balance sheet should you choose to or sell it, you know, um, and you don't have to take uh, exposure to it. Awesome. Okay, that, that, that makes sense. All right. So so more broadly, like why why are lending markets important in, in crypto? Like, are they needed? Yeah, I think in, in any real asset class, in order for the cl- the, the asset to have um, proper price action and price discovery, there needs to be a two-sided market. Like if you have assets that have no supply to be able to lend, uh, to be able to be loaned, um, and like, let's say a limited float, like they, you know, they could behave very strangely, like just straight up go up in a straight line or, or, you know, get completely dislocated to where in theory they should be trading. So lending is an important part of, of any market. And it's also that, you know, that's for like more of like the price to fundamental value side of things, which is a little bit, um, less of a thing in crypto, right? Because a lot of things are more speculative or, or you know, kind of just uh, momentum driven in many ways. But, um, you know, the, 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 the other thing to consider with, with lending is the supply side of things. Like if you're 
long or bullish an asset. Like other people might have use for it. So rather than kind of just having it sit there and and do nothing for you, you can earn a yield on it in a productive way. And um, yeah, the, the people will basically pay you for it. It's very common in stocks, right? Like, you know, if you're bullish a stock that a lot of people want to short, you can get paid a lot to allow them to take that view. And, you know, if you're right, you get the interest, which you can roll back into your stock. And in lending in crypto, it's kind of natively done. It's called in-kind interest, where you lend, let's say, Bitcoin and get Bitcoin back in interest. Um, you know, that, that could make so that if you're actually right on the bullish thesis of your asset, your interest that you collect when prices are depressed, in a realized sense from your notional, becomes very large in the future. So, um, yeah, it's kind of a way for you know, lenders to get good yield, borrowers to be able to express views and makes markets more efficient. And, and um, yeah, I think it's just healthy for every market to have a good two-sided borrow-lend situation. And then there's, there's also, you guys have Genesis Market Insights, which is a, a great uh, kind of, I, I, I don't know what you call it, just general content that you guys produce on your website. And yeah, just t- tell me about that. Like, what Have you seen uh, anything that is really interesting over the years of you being at Genesis through those insights or, or just in general that has surprised you or really jumped out at you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the insights have evolved just natively from the way they've started to now. Uh, when you look at kind of the early reports and how they looked even relative to now, and I think the, the tone of them and kind of the way the, the market we're catering to has changed too. But, you know, in terms of, you know, if I had to pick some, some big changes uh, over the course of the years, one is um, the proliferation of, of stable coins and kind of what that's done to the market in terms of settlement and just efficiency. I think it's made things extremely efficient and better. Uh, it's actually forced a lot of banks to evolve and um, sort of iterate on their, their existing structure to be competitive, which you know a handful of them actually have done. So that's been awesome to see. Um, I think a recent trend, and we haven't actually talked about this, mu- this too much because it's more of a now trend, I think um, permissioned pools on chain are becoming much, much more popular. So sort of like the things that Genesis has done in a private way over the counter, you know, now can be done on chain in a smart contract. But those smart contract participants don't have to be fully decentralized or anything like that. There could be white labeled sort of people that are engaged in it and authorized to borrow and lend. And I think that's going to become a huge thing in the future. But, I've, you know, we're seeing a lot more of that with some some companies coming out um, and, and building sort of tools like that. Um, and I would say, uh, so I, those are two main ones. And then the third, I think, is like just the concentration of where people trade, where people engage in leverage has evolved and I think distributed for the better to uh, places that are more suited suitable to, to take on those positions and handle those sort of positions. And you know you're seeing less sort of wild single liquidation moves that you've seen over over the time. So I think over time a lot of the the scary vol- rapid volatility is dampening in some ways, and it gets a little more drawn out and a little bit more controlled when that happens. So I think that's that's those are three uh, market insights I would say have, have changed a bit. So overall, do you think that the crypto markets are maturing and and maturing in a in a in a, in a positive manner? Yeah, I think they're maturing in, in many ways. I mean, oh, and another thing, you know, that kind of goes along with that and, and maturing is like, you know, you see headline news in DC and 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 like kind of like literally at the forefront of C-SPAN and, and Bloomberg or whatnot uh, impacting crypto markets. So that's like a huge sort of uh, affirmation of how far it's gone. You see a lot of people, people talking about it now more so than ever. But I do think ultimately that the space has way more um, tools and infrastructure built around it that, that are a sign of a maturing asset class. Like, you know, no longer can you say like, oh, Bitcoin is only going up because no one can ever short it. And if I could short it, I would do it all the time. Like, you know, now you have options markets, you have derivatives markets, you have futures, you have forwards, you have CME, you have Genesis, you have all of our competitors, you have DeFi permissioned and unpermissioned. Like the amount of tooling for the space has completely um, exploded and, and there's so much you can do. I think it's very mature. So do you think that, and this is a kind of a tangent, but do you think that, you know, in general, people talk about kind of the, the crypto or Bitcoin four-year cycles where you know, there's a happening and then things go up after a while and then there's kind of a big drawdown. Do you think that that cycle will continue going forward? Or do you think because the markets are becoming more mature and more, um, yeah, kind of professionalized, do you think that that will, that volatility and those massive up, upswings and drawdowns will, will dampen significantly? 
Yeah, that's the, um, <laughs> you know, it's funny that you asked that because that's the trillion dollar question. And I actually spend a good amount of time um, updating my thoughts on that and writing about it because um, I do think it's an important thing to keep at the forefront of my mind. I mean, to talk about it from two angles, one is things that will never change and things that will change. So things that will never change, um, I think, are sort of emotion and greed and fervor and uh, sort of virality of, of trades and ideas and things like that. I think that aspect of markets will always exist. And as a result of that, you'll always see moves that extend and come off. And there is always an element of mean reversion because that is the nature of human psychology in many ways. I do think what will change is the participants in the space, the where the assets are being held and how it's um, how the risk is being taken in the market and how participants choose to enter the market. Like no longer do you have to just buy spot. You can maybe sell puts. You can buy spot and sell calls. Uh, you can you know do things with futures and spreads. So there's a sophistication to the level of entry in the market. And I think you know derivatives marketplaces are going to become a lot bigger and they already have in many ways. And what's different from derivatives markets versus spot markets is that derivatives markets are zero sum, right? You know, every single participant is losing or winning. You know, there's, there's a positive dollar for every negative dollar. Whereas spot, you know, and, and the underlying market, if it grows, everyone can make money in a way, right? So as those derivative markets grow, the people that are um, net positive trading those derivatives markets, I think tend to be more sophisticated investors that are in it for the long run and also holders of spot. So you're going to see a lot of the the PL that's generated in derivatives markets rolled into spot and, and become stickier. And, you know, the deflationary aspects of some of these markets will become more and more relevant and, and prevalent. And I think as a result of that, you'll see potentially, you know, maybe that cycle becomes faster. Maybe it's kind of not even a thing anymore. And it's sort of just, it's, you know, we're talking super cycle territory now. Um, you know, it's it's very flexible in terms of that. And I know I haven't given you a straight answer on this. I kind of gave like the two aspects of it that always fight, right? Because the, the latter thing I talked about is the, is the reason why you wouldn't see what we saw before. The former thing I talked about is exactly the reason why you would see what we saw before, which is the greed and the emotion. So I think those two forces are always at play and it's hard to predict for the future. But I do think keeping those two forces at the forefront of your journaling and, and note taking is a way to to have a sense of how things uh, could function and how to position yourself so that uh, in either scenario, you feel good about your place in the marketplace. Love that. All right, so so going back to Genesis, how do you see Genesis evolving in the future? I feel like you guys have, you know, you guys have pretty much gotten uh, everything covered, it seems like, from trading to lending to custody even. So where where can you guys evolve from here? Yeah, so I think the future for us probably, in, in many ways, there's there's a lot going on. I think and, and NFTs are definitely a part of it. I know we're going to get into that too. But one is, you know, I think uh, from like a engagement perspective and kind of what we're looking at, I do think things like NFTs and more illiquid collateral and more sort of stranger things to to lend against are, are definitely in our in our potential future, especially if they're bearer and on chain because we like that uh, relative to sort of like a piece of paper that says that you know you have a pledge over whatever. Um, I also think that a huge part of what, and this is something that I'm, you know, we recently started talking about a lot more is like more of like the on-chain stuff, the permission pools, like maybe something like a Genesis pool on-chain where, you know, we set like the rate that anyone can borrow at with X collateral for the next 40 hours and like a series of whitelisted addresses or counterparties are kind of um, engaged in that and can choose to, you know, to pull assets from there and deposit collateral, which then comes to us to like uh, our whitelisted address. So it's all like sort of transparent and on chain, but more importantly, automatic and through like the same MetaMask or um, Ethereum wallet infrastructure that, that people want to use. So I think that's a way that for us to evolve. I think um, more structured products is another way for us to evolve. Um, you know, there's, we've just scratched the surface of, of products like with options and futures, but there's way more interesting and esoteric uh, things to, to structure, especially as there's more liquidity on the first level derivatives, which are just, you know, forwards, futures and, and options. Once those become more and more liquid, which they will, you can start making a lot more interesting esoteric things like, um, you know, swaps and, 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 and even, you know, further. Um, so I think, uh, you know, those are some of the th short, short ways that I think we're going to evolve. Um, 
Yeah, and I think you know, we have more competition now too than ever, both from you know on-chain stuff and, and also other desks that are similar to Genesis. So we're going to have to kind of uh, evolve with the times as well. Awesome. All right. So yeah, you mentioned it. I want to know like what your general thoughts are on NFTs. It's a very broad question, but I would, I'd just love to hear from you. Yeah, I mean, my general thoughts on thoughts on NFTs are uh, they're a thing for sure, and I and I I think they're here to stay. Uh, Pandora's box is open. They're not going anywhere. Um, it's funny. Like my first doubt foray into NFTs was actually CryptoKitties, which I still kick myself over because. Uh, we can get into that later when, when we talk more about them. But you know, bottom line was they're they're not really worth anything now. But um, yeah, I think NFTs are here to stay. <laughs> they're 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 definitely um, interesting sort of case studies in uh, what people choose to spend money on. I think they they represent a lot about not only the seller but a lot of, about the buyer too. And um, yeah, I think ultimately, yeah, quick thoughts or NFTs are a thing. They're here to stay. And it's important to take them seriously. Oh, and also one thing I like about NFTs right now is it sort of reminds me of um, lending in like 2018, where I was like, part of the reason why I worked at Genesis was I was like, look, like here's a like a function of financial assets, lending and and spot borrowing that like doesn't exist, and it's definitely going to exist in the future. And every single existing institution that does this, namely banks, are not going to do this anytime soon. So this is a huge ARB because like, I know for sure this is going to be a thing, yet no one's doing it. So there's, there's an ARB here. There has to be growth coming in the future. NFTs are like 95% of people you talk to think they're dumb, but I'm like 100% sure that like, those people are going to have to capitulate their opinion eventually. So I really like the asymmetry on what they offer. I love that. I love that. Okay. So what do you, I want to talk about like the, the NFT markets broadly, and we can talk about um, you know, there's there's virtual land. There's you know these avatar projects. I, I guess you can call them collectibles. And there's uh, gaming assets. Like, what what out of those categories, or or just out of any category of NFTs, do you find most exciting or interesting personally? And it can be from a from a like a fun standpoint, and then from like a financial standpoint. Yeah, I think um, from like a fun standpoint, I, I do like the the intersection of gaming and NFTs. I think that's a big one. Um, Especially if you can make like, like, I don't know if we've actually seen in crypto um, like a, a proper sort of addictive, I mean, maybe like Axie is sort of, sort of like it, but like, you know, the, the concept of an MMORPG that has uh, NFTs uh, proliferating through its marketplace, I think is really exciting. So it's, it's the intersection of online gaming and uh, NFTs, I think are, is really interesting. The avatar NFTs, like the sort of rarer ones like the 10k limit ones or the 6k or 7k i think could become like you know those are i'm a little bit more like i don't really know about how those are gonna um like exist or 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 move forward in the future i do think like they're a long play because like let's say you buy like a you know an nft that has like a print of like you know six thousand or whatever but then over the course of years like the, the community that like sold the nft and like the community itself that's involved in the NFT starts doing a lot of cool and interesting things for all the holders, then I think it builds value over time in some sort of uh, way. Like even if that's online value or like there's like real life events or something like that, like with the disclosure NFT or the Ioki NFT. So I think like it's harder to know that upfront and maybe you do know that. So like the avatar stuff I think is gonna be a thing, but it, like the value is gonna change a lot as like the, the what you can kind of get with it and like the clout you have with it even uh, evolves over time. So. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I think about like the, like, yeah, gaming bullish avatars also bullish, but a little bit like less certain on how exactly. All right. So what do you think about, cause when I think about crypto markets, I, I think of them as like pure financial kind of markets where, you know, the objective is to make money and that's pretty much uh, all the economic incentives are kind of geared towards that purpose. It, 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 essentially, like I'm, I'm generalizing, but that, that's essentially it, true. And if you look at NFT markets, um, there is a, 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 you know, making money is a big part of it, but at the same time, there's all these kind of non-monetary factors that come into play. Like, you know, there's social status, which is a huge one. There is like, you know, emotional attachment or like a social kind of connection to like this asset being, you know, a, a, a community asset or whatever. So how do you think that that evolves over time? Do you think that the NFT markets are, are, um, are, are like, do you, do you think that, that those quote unquote human factors are like the secret sauce 
behind in NFTs that make them grow even more? Or do you think that they're going to turn into more like kind of, um, I, don't, I don't know, like financial, purely financial assets? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's like the question is like, do, do NFTs become uh, like, like super financial and professional, professionalized, I guess is like the, the question yeah, really yeah. in a way. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, it's, it's tough to say. I, I think just given what they are innately, I think that depending on the type of NFT to a degree, yes. Like if the, if the, if the, if the NFT is, um, maybe a, a currency or, or something that has a lot in like an online game, like there could be like a whole economy built around like farming it, amassing it, um, selling it, trading it. And it's sort of like a churn process. And there's like people like, you know, doing a very professional, like very industrial IRR style model in terms of like creating and, and offloading them. But if it's like more of like a one of one or like a unique avatar style thing, I think it'll always have like that more art component and creative component. And like, there won't be like perfect pricing on it. It'll move around quite a bit and there'll be like a lot of perceived value, which could change at, at a whim um, for any reason. So I think it depends on the type of NFT things that are like, like, you know, maybe like in like a game, more of a gaming sense, it could be professionalized, but from like an avatar and, um, you know, sort of pure art sense, it could be, it could be more, um, it could be more like creative in a way. All right. So, so do you think that like, do you think that Genesis w w will in the future, and I'm talking like far future, let, let's just pretend, do you think that you guys will be deeply involved in NFT markets uh, going forward? Yeah. So there's an extent of things that I could say on this uh, podcast publicly, and a lot of it will kind of depend on our strategy of how we want to come out with what we're saying. What I'll say is, what I'll say is this right now is like, as it stands right now, we're not completely off touch from the NFT markets. So I'll say that. Oh, I'm excited. And uh, like in terms of like actually, you know, touching NFTs and we'll probably come out at some point with a way, with, with some sort of, you know, release in some way. But what I'll say is NFTs are, the way I see it, are definitely part of our future. And um, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to be involved in them. And, you know, there's a chance that, you know, we're doing some stuff already uh, oh. behind wraps. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's very, very potentially exciting. Yes, I'm, yes, yes. For the I'm future. potentially excited to hear more. <laughs> All right. So, so what is, what has surprised you the most about NFTs? Again, a very, a very broad question, but j just in general, but what has been uh, the most kind of, you know, yeah, surprising to you? Um, I think the, the value accrual to like, just in, in particular, this one specific example, because I remember looking at both of them in 2017 when NFTs were first a thing. First, CryptoPunks came out, then CryptoKitties. CryptoKitties had all the hype then. Punks weren't really talked about because, you know, you could game the CryptoKitties a bit, like in terms of like playing and breeding and minting new ones. Um, so I thought back then I was like, and I didn't view it as like an opportunity cost thing, like do I want to own a punk or a kitty? But it was more like, oh, like the kitties are probably the more interesting thing because they're, you know, there's, there's a lot of momentum around them. What it turned out in the future, and now in hindsight, it's more obvious, is that you know if you have like an arbitrary multiplication on your, on your kitties, and they can just be an infinite number of them because there's just more and more and more that are minted, or or bred, um, that become that makes the value prop of the entire NFT of that entire NFT total sum less attractive rather than like a more fixed, static, elusive, um, you know, non like multiplicative NFT market. And I think, um, yeah, that was a surprise to me at the time. Now, in hindsight, it makes sense, but it did surprise me a bit that that was the way the market played out. Yeah, th that is that is interesting. And I wonder if going forward, something like that will change, where something with a, with a I guess, generally increasing supply uh, will actually accrue more value compared to projects with a, with a you know, f fixed supply. And yeah, it, it's... It's almost like um, it's almost like comparing art or collectible, <clears throat> something that has you know little to no functionality with a fixed supply. If you look at like for example Axie, like Axies have have def definitely you know increased in, in value significantly since since their kind of since their start, and and there is no fixed supply of Axies like the creatures. Mm -hmm. um, there mm -hmm. is a fixed supply of like the origin Axies and then Mystic Axies, which are like the rarest ones. Mm -hmm. But if, if yeah, if you think about that, I, I wonder like how. How that's going to play out going forward? Because 
Um, yeah, I mean, the, actually now I think it costs like 400 bucks for the, the, the cheapest one. And they start off with like, it was like five bucks or even less. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's very interesting. I, I'm, I'm curious to see. Hopefully, hopefully I'll, I'll be around and I'll be able to, I'll be able yeah. to tell you. Yeah, one thought on that is I think the, the, the relevance of the game matters a ton because like kitties, like no one really is playing anymore or breeding anymore. Like with with something that's multiplying, like the game itself has to have some sort of value that's that's still being accrued to. And then like, yes, the original ones will potentially be worth more in the future, like an Axie or like a Zed run or something like that. If the game loses its um, user, like playability, then the multiplication process, I think, just becomes a huge uh, deterrent. So yeah, that's my final thought on that. Awesome. Yeah. So okay, speaking of Axie, speaking of Zed, uh, what do you think about play to earn? Just like yeah, general broad thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's kind of formalizing in NFTs, like kind of what was happening um, in gaming prior to like crypto happening. Like you know, like people had like World of Warcraft gold farms, or like you know, in like let's say Diablo, there was like an auction house where you can sell your loot and things like that. So. Um, that was all sort of centralized and now it's more on a you know, chain, but broadly speaking on play to earn, I think it's a thing. I think it, um, I think it, it makes gaming a little bit more, uh, professional in terms of like what you can get out of it. Like Eve online, I guess is a more, a better example of play to earn, like the value of those sort of ships that are, you know, and I've never even played, uh, wow or Eve, but I've, I've read a lot about Eve, um, and I've, you know, actually I was in Iceland and the Eve conference was happening there. So there was like all these Eve people and, and I got in, I got into like looking into it and it was like the value of some of these space battles are, are massive. So it's like, it, it kind of increases the stake um, a lot. So like play to earn where you have the ability to lose too is like, I think uh, kind of uh, sort of plays on the strings of poker and gambling and things like that, which, which are very um, addictive and, and a lot of people, you know, will, will be engaged in. So do you think that so, so you're you're highly confident that play to earn is here to stay, um, but do you think that the play to earn? Do you think that when people are suddenly now playing a game in order to earn money with, with with that kind of sole objective, do you think that interferes with like the fun factor of the game? And do you think that the game then um, like it's just driven purely by people that want to make money? Therefore, if something more you know new and shiny and easier pops up, they'll just move to that. Or how do you kind of see that evolving going forward? Yeah, I think I guess I'll fine tune my answer a bit here because. You know, when you think about play to earn just na- naively where it's like there's just like a mint of of creative, like of, of like capital, kind of like a net positive sum of, of things happening. It's maybe like kind of becomes a little bit more of like a like, you know, if like the, the, the publisher is just like disseminating stuff that's valuable and then more and more people have it and they're earning it and everyone's kind of making money. It's a little bit more boring. I like the concept now that I'm thinking of it and I'm just brainstorming here, like play to risk in a way, right, where you can earn, you could lose you could risk this much, you could risk that much. Maybe like in RuneScape when you're in like the, the wildlands or whatever, and you know, you, you know, there's like net positive and PL in dollars associated with like your your um your your sort of death there or or success. And I think it's it's just kind of formalizing what existed anyways, right? Because you spent hours getting your loot and your time is money in a way. And if you die in the, you know, the the dark zone or whatever it was called in RuneScape, the wildlands, um, you know, you, you lose it. So you lost your time, which is effectively you've lost your money. And if you win, you, you got someone else's time. And now it's like that time is sort of tokenified. So I think the risk factor of it makes it more interesting for sure. If it's just all positive roses, you know, you get more money for playing and it's just a net positive. I think it's a little less interesting for sure. That's a super, super cool concept. It's, it's really, uh, we're getting pretty, um, kind of sci-fi here there's yeah. sci-fi utopia mixed with a little dystopia in the sense of like you know that th- it can go both ways but in 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 history we tend to make things uh more, more utopian than, than dystopian so I, i'm confident we'll we'll be able to we'll, 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 we'll make it we'll make it work yeah for sure all right so so what sector in crypto nfts DeFi, or whatever uh has gotten you most excited about and, and specifically what 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 um yeah kind of what subsector within those categories has you most excited yeah, so um, I guess like in crypto, just generally, I think like the 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 spot the space that, that the part of it that's you know really interesting to me is like the sort of modularity of the the on chain uh, things that are going on, like the you know your positions and in, in certain protocols and kind of how your um, your 
your uh, like your borrows and loans and things like that could be tokenified, and then all these things are really modular, and and the like uh, interface could kind of sit on top of that. But there are multiple interfaces, and you kind of just can plug in your your wallet, and you can see them in different ways. It just makes it so that the data layer is so uh, accessible, and that I think is just the, such an exciting component. Like it's definitely the way everything should go in the future, or I hope it goes because it's it's such an exciting um, such an exciting kind of uh, thought there and um, and along with that like kind of the the usability and like the the smoothness of interacting with a lot of um, protocols and kind of plugging into this and plugging into that and moving this from there to that it's like it's all very um, like efficient and, and and you know from a UX perspective like someone that's used to using like an app and then uses a theory like an app on an iPhone that's like centralized and then uses ethereum they're like this is the worst thing ever um, why would anyone ever use this but like once you like start to like get it and like the yields and the 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 gamification of certain things and kind of like the 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 modularity i think it's i think that's that's a super exciting component of it and it doesn't have to be completely decentralized like even right now a lot of the things that we call fully decentralized or decentralized finance are they're more about the you know the 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 accessibility and the modularity rather than the the how how many people care it's decentralized and i think a lot of sort of centralized financial things will occur in this modular interface of on-chain layer. Um, uh, that's super exciting to me. And then, I mean, on the NFT space, and this is more, I guess, um, from like kind of what I do angle, uh, I'm more excited, you know, I'm excited about the the financialization of, of more of it, you know, like the, the trading of it, the lending against it. You know, there's all sorts of interesting products you can create around NFTs. NFTs could become a a useful, uh, sort of productive asset if you can borrow against them. So they're not a complete liquidity loss. So like kind of building financialization around newer, um, uh, new, the new assets that, that come out of the space like NFTs, I think is, is exciting as well. That's, re that's really cool that you mentioned about like DeFi and the modularity. Because I'm always thinking about DeFi and okay, it has to be totally decentralized for it to like actually make sense, blah, blah, blah. But in, in reality, most users don't care. Most users, do, but you know, everyone does care about the functionality and and what these things are capable of, what these products are capable of, and so the modularity that's like super important that that I feel like not enough people talk about. So yeah, really, yeah. really cool point. And let me, I just actually thought of a good example on that front because like let's look, let's take a look at your 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 credit card or your debit card, like your Chase history, like you know all that history is there and it's in like frankly like a very terrible format to to utilize, but like. Imagine if that was uh, on chain and like protected in some way from a privacy layer, like maybe zero knowledge or something. And then any startup out there could make a UI for your spending history and create charts and categories and be good or bad and relative to others about it. Like you would use the best one to like track your spending and your debit and tr credit card stuff. Right now, a lot of our data is just in these places where it can't be utilized and that modularity is completely lost. I think that's the real exciting part of a lot of this, you know? And I just thought of that example off the cuff. Like I literally was not even thinking about it, but that's kind of a good example of it. Love that, love that. All right, so so where do you think that we're headed with all this technology? I feel, I feel like there's all so many things moving at once and, and so, so many advancements that, that are not just like, you know, kind of linear advancements that are like zero to one fully. And so, so uh, you know, a lot of people recently have been talking about like the metaverse and now we have all, all this, uh, you know, cool new shiny technology. Is, is that where you think we're headed? Are we headed to this like virtual world where everyone's kind of living in and spending most of their time or, or, or do you think that it's going to be like, like, yeah, I want to hear from you. Like, what do you think is going to happen? Like, where are we headed with all this? Yeah. So like when you talk about like the extreme example of like, like a ready player one scenario where like everyone day to day is in the virtual world and it's like this magnanimous like glorious place and reality relative to it is mundane and and sort of dystopian in a way i at the very least hope that's not the way we're going um i do think there is a ton of value to 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 real life experiences that you know for a while won't be able to be created even close to it in the in the metaverse I think that, so with that being said, like, I think, you know, yes, people are going to spend more time in the metaverse and they already have in, in, in some ways, like, and, and especially with a lot of the jobs that are like, kind of like what I do or even you do, which is like more like, you know, online trading, all you really need is a bunch of screens and an internet connection. It's a lot easy to, a lot easier to like kind of plug into your, you know, virtual self and hang out with your friends in discord and then, you know, do your job as well. Um, you know, I think there's, there's going to be a lot more of, of sort of 
maybe like uh, translations between the metaverse to the real world, like DAOs and and kind of events that they host and and um, you know places to go and things like that. So like the metaverse will intertwine more with reality, and the two will the two will kind of um, be be much more closely related. But I do think that like a full on complete shift to the metaverse is a lot is longer away than maybe we think and hopefully like at least for me like i would want to balance that out with like doing like physical activities that i like you know like whatever skiing traveling and you know enjoying things like that so i think there's um there's definitely a move towards that but i think they're going to intertwine a lot better and uh you know there's going to be a lot a lot of uh interaction with them in the future all right so i want to talk now about the global macro picture because i always think about you know, the fact that crypto has only existed in a bull market, you know, in, ter- in terms of the traditional financial world and the fact that, you know, NFTs are, are you know, now a, a, a you know, su- on their way to be an asset class fully. And, um, and I'm always thinking about, okay, wait, are we just in some, you know, massive global macro bubble where this is all possible? And are we just living in like some fairy tale world or is this like a real thing? Um, obviously, you know, I've, I've, I, you know, I put my chips that, that this is a real thing and it's going to last even when the, when this macro bubble does pop. But I want to hear from you. Like, what, what do you think about the, the global macro, macro picture and how it affects crypto and, and NFTs and everything else? Yeah, you know, I, I will caveat this by saying I, I am by no means like a global macro uh, theorist or economist or anything like that. I'm kind of just talking from the perspective that I have and what I know. And I, you know, I think there is... Um, yeah, in terms of kind of like the, the environment that crypto has existed in, like this post-2008 financial crisis environment where things have kind of been in a specific regime in the, in the macro, you know, world, I think, you know, it is, it is an, it will be interesting to see in a data set where like that macro environment is different than what it is now. Um, I do think though that, uh, you know, a lot of people like to say like, you know, things are very different now and, you know, where there's unprecedented is a term that's used all the time and like uh you know it's it, you know but then in reality history tends to repeat itself and you kind of see things that happened before uh you know happen uh again in many ways i do think you almost in in many ways have to rewrite the the entire script after the information age right you have to kind of almost delete a lot of history you should look at it and understand it and and know it but you shouldn't I don't think it's fair to be overly attached to fitting those um, historical analyses and context into a post-information age era. Because when you fundamentally think about what it means that every human can talk to each other instantly, globally, news is traveling at, a, at this instant global pace, like it is a paradigm shift. It, it is a magnitude of order different than what existed previously for society and civilization. It's just a fact. And crypto has only existed of, of the 21 years and really like 15 where it's been popular of about half of that. So these are blips on the radar of global history and, and civilization. And I think, you know, uh, you know, it's the macro environment will always ebb and flow. But like the information age, uh, I think, proliferation and kind of the trends that are spawned as a result of this information age are going to power through macro. So like, yes, let's say you do see like some sort of depression or fundamental flight to dollars for some reason. And I don't know what would cause that, but let's just say hypothetically you do. It's not like crypto is going to disappear off the face of the earth. It might be higher beta to other risk assets and NFTs might be higher beta to crypto itself. But this like post-information age bet is is always there. So in many ways, I'm agreeing with you and kind of preaching to the choir. But I think, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about change and and you know things have people have always said things are going to change and this time and this is different than before but i do think it's fair to say it in the post information age because it's it is an order of magnitude different damn that 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 is such a cool and interesting interesting kind of concept there i i didn't think about kind of the flows of of information and how that affects global macro that's a super super cool concept i i need to dive in that dive deeper into that yeah for sure honestly as i'm listening to myself me too <laughs> <laughs> All right, all right. So, w- where do you personally want to be in, let's say, five to ten years from now? Like, what is your what is your grand vision for everything that you're working on? Yeah, you know, I think um, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, you know potentials and golden paths and, and questions there. I think for me, you know, just kind of 
macro, like I, I want impact is really important to me. Like kind of however you make that impact uh, globally in terms of um, uh, like what maybe it's like a company or, or where you work currently and, and expand or, or something else. I think, you know, just having an impact uh, on the on the little blip of history that I'm a part of is uh, is a huge um, is a huge thing for me. I also at the same time uh, don't really put a lot of and I used to do it. I think more so now than more so then than now, like put pressure on myself to like think of what I should be in five years or 10 years. And I think maybe you read like a lot of self self-help books or something like that. If you know, just generally where people, where people say like, make a five-year plan, make a 10-year plan, make a 20-year plan. I'm like, dude, like, I don't even know like what like is going to happen in 30 seconds to like two minutes to, you know, so it's like, there's so many conditional, uh, logics or, or events that go into place before a five-year or 10-year and a lot of things can change where I like to keep that a, a, a pretty open sort of vision but broadly speaking I think what what gives me um, like sort of excitement and passion is, is is impact and kind of engaging in things that I know are going to be big in the future but not that many people are looking at and positioning so that as that proliferates into popularity you know you're in a position where um, you know, you can kind of have a lot of impact with whether it's your voice or your capital or your company or your user base or whatever. Um, and I think, uh, you know, that's kind of the way I, I just broadly position for the future. Damn. That, again, awesome answer. That, that, that is so cool. Awesome. Awesome. Well, well, Ro, we, we could just keep chatting for forever, but time, you know, we, we have to jump into closing questions. Yeah, for sure. No worries. All right. What is your favorite video game? Hmm. Um, I think that's probably, I mean, I played a bunch of games when I was growing up. Uh, I think of all time, it's probably Halo 3. Um, oh, I, I love that. Yeah, Halo 3 was great. It was like, I don't know when it came out, it was maybe like middle school, but there was a great online community and like Forge was like a thing where people made these maps and all your friends were playing it. Everyone was on voice chat and it was like, it was a very like sort of cooperative. I don't think anything will ever come close for me, at least to the experience I had playing Halo 3 growing up. It was so much fun. Um, yeah, really enjoyed that one. All right. What is your single favorite NFT that you own? Uh, I'll caveat this by saying I don't own a ton of NFTs, um, and some of them are like from like seventeen, like those kitties, where like, I haven't even like probably hooked up into that wallet in so long. I uh, hope I still have it. <laughs> I think I do. But um, mm, my favorite one, I think one that I really like right now, actually, I got it today, which is funny, is uh, this audio glyph. It's like a generative audio file that's like super high quality but it goes to like forever online well um i've never yeah. i've never I, I i thought i've heard of autoglyphs but not audioglyphs yeah yeah this isn't an image although it's linked to an image which is a different nft and i don't really know uh much about like kind of that linking process but it's uh yeah it's just like kind of a digital audio file that's like i don't know i just like did it on a whim it was like whatever someone was like sent me like a mint and i was like yeah whatever I'll see what it is. And I got like a very soothing tone. And then you could download it like for however long you want, like 10 seconds, 60 seconds, you know, 24 hours. Um, it loops at a certain point, I think in a minute, but mine was soothing enough where I'm going to probably make it like my wake up alarm on like iOS. Cause I could, I could use a new one. And like this one, it's like, I own this, you know, it's like nice. Um, but yeah, I kind of like that one. That's so cool. I, I, I have to, I have to definitely check that out. That's awesome. All right, what is your most controversial thought relating to crypto or NFTs? Um, I guess let's go with NFTs because that's a little bit more the the focus here. But I think a lot of, you know, right now what I see in the NFT space is a lot of just sort of like, um, you know, just not really, like just kind of a lot of like just shoot from the hip before you go kind of thing. And I think that's cool about crypto in a lot of ways that that works out because you should, but I think one area that, and I wish there was a standard for in NFTs in particular, and maybe this isn't even controversial, I just think a lot of people aren't looking at it, is like the the developer or the team that made it, and then like the kind of the way the hashing works with the 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 randomness of where which NFT is which online. Like I think a lot of people just kind of take that for granted or have trust in it, but like we're in, we're in the crypto space, right? Like we're not supposed to like trust, we're supposed to verify. And if there was like a cool, like sort of transparent way or standard of doing that, I think that'll, That'll be nice to have, and I think a lot of the, you know, NFT. I'm, I'm I don't know for sure, but I imagine that some NFTs that exist out there, or launches exist out there, are not as fair as they say they are. And I don't. I'm not accusing anyone of anything, but I just think that like 
people should be more cognizant of like knowing how the actual assignment and generation works. That's super interesting. Okay, so like you're talking about we should have potentially a standard where uh, like a, a provably random standard that, that yes. people use so everyone knows, okay, this is totally fair. Yes, exactly. And it, should, it could be like an open Zeppelin thing. It could be like a thing where it's like, and it shouldn't have anything to do with off-chain. Like it should be fully like in the on-chain like contract. Like here's the set of this, here's the set of this, and this is the contract's going to match it at this point through this block. And miners can't manipulate it in any way. There's nothing that goes on like that. It's a, and this brings in the, like the technical challenge of randomness on-chain which is a whole nother rabbit hole. And I'm, frankly, I'm not even like an Ethereum, like randomness on-chain expert where like truly randomness, I guess is somewhat impossible, but I don't know, we have to figure it out and it's something that needs to exist. Very cool. All right, if you could snap your fingers and instantly change or improve one thing in the crypto or NFT ecosystem, what would it be? Um, I think it would be, I mean, broadly speaking here, it would just be like flares up of use cases around specific times and things. So like in the NFT world, that's mints. In the crypto world, given that there's a lot of financialization uh, of, of the asset, specifically lending and borrowing, which means that there's margin flows and collateral, um, you know, if I could just change like that load, like that load just putting every network on its knees, like everything works until it doesn't. And, you know, when you need it to work, is when it doesn't work. And for NFT mints, it's less of an issue because you're just like not able to get something. For collateral movements and margin flows, it is an issue. And whether that's something done like where like the contract can see an incoming transaction or something and be able to like give you a little bit leeway on margin or things like that, um, or like something where it just like can, can handle load better and liquidations better. Like I think Maker has a pretty good system there where it's like a 24 hour TWAP on price before you get liquidated, I think like that's going to help a lot of institutions or higher net worth people or just like kind of more users in the space. Like if you have more friendly flares up in transaction times um, and transactability, like that's going to be like, I would, I would love to just kind of flick a switch and change that, which is like literally I'm saying like, oh, I could just if I, if I could just scale everything, that'd be great, which is like kind of a cop out. But it is, <laughs> you know, there is a fundamental reason why I say that. Love that. All right. Who is someone that you look up to and why? Um, uh, you know, picking one person is hard, but I have to probably pick this person. It's probably Dan, uh, from CMS. Um, yeah, I, I, I look up to him a lot in many ways. He, I've actually listed him probably as a mentor on some, some of the lists I've, I've done and whatnot. But, um, yeah, the reason is he's, uh, I think he's just a really good risk taker, but also like a really good person and like just kind of gets it. And there's just like an endless trove of learning to, to do when you know someone like that. So I view him as like kind of a, a good mentor and, and, and thought partner generally. Also, his Twitter is just on, it's just fire. So, so yeah, it's, it's also definitely something you got to yeah. account for. He has a great sense of humor, no doubt. That's awesome. Very cool. All right. Last question. Where do you see the crypto and NFT ecosystem in three years? Um. I mean, one, obviously, uh, I mean, just a lot bigger. And I, I don't mean that in terms of price, but in terms of users and like onboarded users. And I think there's going to be a lot more, um, you know, tribes of whatnot. Like, you know, people will get onboarded through Solana or people get onboarded through um, some other, you know, uh, application. I don't know, uh, maybe like Atom or, or uh, Ethereum again, but maybe like you know, people really like Polygon or Phantom or something. So there's going to be all these, like, there's going to be more users. And I think that they're going to be more fragmented, which is going to be a little bit, uh, you know, sort of tough. So like interoperability will be much of a bigger thing. I think that, you know, um, NFTs are going to, is, is going to be much more uh, widely uh, held. Like you probably have more celebrities, more athletes, more, you know, kind of, people that are well-known actors, actresses, like have like some sort of um, one of one or, you know, unique NFT that, that, that they like or, and, and that, you know, they're, they're very into. And I think, you know, you're going to see a lot more um, people engaged in it, the traditional world and um, hedge funds and things like that cropping up all over the, the space. I mean, you guys are probably one of the first NFT hedge funds that has ever existed. I imagine there's probably going to be more after this a uh, little, uh, you know, sort of run that we've had recently. Um, yeah, so just like bigger, better, more people, more tools, you know, all the, the trends that we, you know, think and know. Amazing. Awesome. 
Well, Ro, this has just been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. I, I really loved learning from you all about kind of Genesis and what you guys are up to there. And I, I really especially love that, you know, you're coming on here and, and chatting about NFTs because uh, you bring a totally different perspective than a lot of a lot of other guests because most of the people I bring on are super in the weeds on NFTs. So we, we kind of, sometimes it's nice to look outside of our bubble and talk to people that are, you know, in, in, in the the regular crypto world, which is which is funny to even say that, but but uh, yeah. So I really really appreciate it. You know, you taking the time and, and answering all these questions. If people wanted to, you know, find out more about yourself or learn more about Genesis, where should they go? What should they do? Yeah. So um, and also thank you for having me on here. This this is an absolute blast to, t- to talk to you. And I, I and I think I I even have some takeaways to go you know jot down and read into myself. So that's awesome. And uh, yeah, in terms of following me, like I kind of use my Twitter as like sort of a public journal where you know i kind of just tweet about thoughts ideas random things a lot of like memes or whatever so twitter uh roshan r-o-s-h-u-n patel is good um and then yeah you know if you want to learn more about genesis our website uh genesistrading.com you can kind of check that out um yeah thank you awesome man thanks so much thank you too have a good one hey everyone stay tuned for more episodes of the zima red podcast and subscribe to the zima red newsletter for more info on all things nfts Thanks so much for listening.